Welcome to the Moving Forward podcast. Today we have Joshua from New Progressive Voice, one of our recurring guest stars or co-hosts, and we're going to talk about the controversial topic, is it time to ditch primaries? So I'm really looking forward to that. Before we, uh, before I introduce Joshua and um, move into the main topic, as usual, um, now I'm going to start by reading a five-star review off of Apple Podcasts. Uh, <clears throat> this is from, it's a, most of these are anonymous. This is from Quisats99. <laughs> um, that it's called, titled Bridging the Divide. Great conversations between progressives and conservatives on the shared values and goals that all Americans can get behind. No matter what side you lean, this is a great way to understand the other side. Well, thank you, Quisats. Appreciate the five-star review. And anybody out there, if you leave a five-star review for the podcast on Apple on the Apple app, I will read you next. All right. And say hi, Joshua. Hi, and thanks for having me aboard once again. Yeah, thanks for coming back. Uh, I, I really enjoy talking to you. You're a very soft-spoken, reasonable person, so you helped to calm me down. <laughs> Appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> um, all right, so we're going to talk about, t- is it time to ditch primaries? And I think we're going to kind of segue into that by first riffing on the impeachment trial that just happened. So what are your thoughts about all that, Josh? Yeah, I think that... Um you know, for myself, I was disappointed, obviously, that he got acquitted. I think it's pretty evidential that, you know, he fomented, incited the the Capitol riots. Um, so what it was a 57 to 43 vote, ten, seven of the Republicans coming over to the Democrats. Um, and polling would suggest that the majority of Americans actually did want him to be convicted of at least, you know, one count. But again, um, the GOP for the greater part, it requires 60 votes. I think it is right. Real. I think it requires two thirds, which, which is 67, 67. Okay. Yeah. And, and it actually, we got 57 votes so we um, for voted conviction. Inclu- 10 shy then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But if you look at like the, uh, actual, uh, polling and you break down, um, a, about 55 to 60 percent of Americans wanted Trump to be convicted, um, depending on what poll you look at, the majority of those obviously were Democrat, like somewhere around 85, 90%. And then independents, even they were anywhere from 60 to 70%. It was just the GOP uh, or the supporters of GOP that were massively against Trump uh, being convicted. So I think that definitely speaks to the partisan nature of what we see here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, maybe we should riff on the actual specifics of it i mean it's kind of funny that uh mitch mcconnell right voted to acquit and then immediately afterward gave a speech about how trump was guilty (laughs) absolutely did you see that yeah yeah uh yeah definitely speaks to how so much of this is motivated motivated by politics and not actually law right (laughs) so sadly yeah, exactly. Um, it is motivated by politics. It is a political process. Um, and so what that really means is, ultimately, who's responsible for the fact that Donald Trump got away with treason? It's the Republican primary voters who nominated these Republicans who put loyalty to this man and his cult-like movement over the country. 
Like they they're not just putting part um, they're not just putting party over country. They're putting Trump over the Republican Party. Absolutely, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so that 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 segues into the into the the subject of primaries. I mean, I've been thinking about this for a while, uh, and I'm actually going to invite Josh to kind of give us a quick. Um, rundown of the history of primaries, um, which a lot of people don't realize actually started in the 20th century in the 1900s. So very, very recent, like in the last hundred years is when they, they we've started doing primaries. So most of this country's history, we didn't have them. Um, so go ahead, Josh. <clears throat> um, well, really, it's broken down by different eras um, of ebb and flow. Uh, the first uh, sort of experimentation came about what's called the early period, 1901 to 1906. And uh, it was a combination of different laws that they would bring dele- delegates to the convention and they would pick their preferred uh, candidate for that particular party. And then it went into 1945 era. And that's when they really, uh, the whole primary idea started to sweep across the nation. Um, but our c- current uh, understanding of the way we do primaries in modern times really didn't set into motion until uh, 1960s. But interestingly, this question that Rio is bringing up is not new. It, there's been a lot of push and pull going back and forth as to whether or not primaries really ultimately s- serve democracy or not. Yeah, um, no, there was a there was a backslide during the 20s, 30s, and 40s where states actually started repealing their primary laws, and and there weren't really very many new ones that were added. And then primaries started coming back uh, into popularity in like the 50s, 60s, 70s, and so forth. Yeah, modern was primary, only, there was modern primaries nationwide where regular people can vote in them and not just delegates um, are, are really um, have only been a thing since like the 70s. You know, they, but they did exist in in some form in other in some states prior to that. And we'll talk about some of that, but um, as to why it, the, there's a debate around it, but some of the things that were brought up um, uh, and the accounting of history of primaries are things like the cost of running the primary. That would often be, uh, you know, a um, an obstacle for some states. Um, another one was obviously, uh, typically we find that primaries have lower participation. So it's not necessarily a representation of what we might see in a general election. So some of the, some of the arguments may be of why primaries are challenging. Now, some of the positives would be that, you know, historically, it's thought to allow people to better pick a candidate across a spectrum within a given party and allow, you know, to pick the favorite one. So that's some of the potential positives that have been talked about through time. Yeah. So the first thing to know is that if, if the idea of d- ditching primaries sounds radical, it's really actually quite conservative in the sense that it's just like, hey, maybe we should go back to how the country was founded and how it actually functioned for most of its history. Maybe primaries are a failed experiment. <laughs> and the, the, the impeachment um, is a perfect example of that, because as I said, Trump wouldn't have gotten away with treason if not for the partisan um most uh, energized Republicans in deep red states who actually vote in primaries. There is a lower participation in primaries. The people who vote in Republican primaries are the most hardcore and the most partisan Republicans. Um, And so people who are senators from states that have closed uh, Republican presidential primaries, 
are not really motivated to do what's in the interest of the American people or even necessarily what's in the interest of of all of their citizens of their state. They're only motivated to do what's in the interest of those most radical and most partisan Republicans because of the closed primary process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I guess there's a middle ground, which is like you could you can keep primaries and maybe open them up. That's another another avenue available to us. Yeah, here. and they are open in some states. That, that in fact, if you look at the Republican senators, if you look at the Repu- the seven Republican senators who did vote to convict Trump, um, which was the right thing to do, um, they're either not running for reelection or they live in states that have open primaries as opposed to closed primaries. Yeah, I think that definitely um, would alleviate some of the you know, um, radical nature of, of, of sort of, uh, you know, because then it opens up to independence or anybody else, depending on the nature of that open primary, um, which would moderate. Well, exactly. I mean, frank, frankly, if you, if you live in a, a deep red state or a deep blue state that has a closed primary, then it actually makes the most sense if you want to have the most influence to register with the majority party in that state so that you can vote in the primary, even if you don't end up voting for that person in the general election. I think that's right. And and even in the general election, then that, you know, carries over that a number of uh, maybe Democrats or independents have voted for that GOP uh, candidate and they get elected and they, it becomes more representative of the body, uh, general body. So I just want to read something that Mitch McConnell said from his speech um, after the um, the impeachment. This is <laughs> gosh. So keep in mind, these are the words of somebody who voted to acquit the president. Um, this is Mitch McConnell. There is no question, none, that the president is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day, meaning the insurrection on January 6th. No question about it. The people that stormed this building believed they were acting on the wishes and instructions of their president. And having that belief was a foreseeable consequence of the growing crescendo of false statements, conspiracy theories, and reckless hyperbole, which the defeated president kept shouting into the largest megaphone on earth. But then, of course, he justified voting to acquit on the kind of specious um, technical legal grounds that Trump was already out of office and therefore it was unconstitutional to impeach him as a regular citizen. Now, most legal scholars disagree with that, but that is the way that this this partisan who is motivated by having to pander to the most radical and most partisan Republicans in his own state justified letting the president get away with treason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, it's the reading of... I'm not sure exactly which amendment is um, that talks about whether or not a president can be removed. I think it's Article One or something, Section Five, the Expulsion Clause or something, that maybe would have allowed the removal. But uh, I do think they're looking at it uh, from another angle. Did they not put forth McConnell and some of the GOP are looking um, through the justice system instead? Yeah, no, that's right. McConnell then went on, and I think this is very key. He then went on to say that Donald Trump has not gotten away with anything yet, Um, that he can be held accountable um, as a regular citizen through the courts. So uh, basically endorsing um, Donald Trump being indicted um, for criminal charges uh, at the state and federal level. And there are 
dozens of cases against Trump that are coming down the pipeline. Right. Criminal, Even- criminal, yeah, criminal cases. Yeah. 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 Citizens that um, are going to be uh, suing them as well. So I think that's what you're talking about. Or part of that, at least. Uh, yeah, those are civil cases, but there's there's criminal and civil, civil case, cases yeah. at the state and federal level that are all coming toward Donald Trump. <laughs> He's in a lot of trouble. Uh, just a side note on that uh, question. Uh, what are your thoughts about um, it serving the moderation of the GOP if he were able to run again? Would you, f- I mean, like in terms of, uh, would you prefer that because it could break up the GOP or do you think that it's better that he not be able to run again in terms of, uh, you know, you getting the candidate you want if on the Republican side? <laughs> oh, boy, that is, uh, you know, absolutely. Donald Trump should not be anywhere near the White House ever again. He if I were in charge of the Republican Party, I would not allow him to run in the primary and they don't have to. Right. They don't have to have primaries at all if they don't want to. <laughs> this is like right. this is the topic of the conversation. Like personally, I'm I think that it's worth considering the possibility that primaries are a failed experiment. I mean, if Donald Trump is what happens when regular people get to vote in primaries, maybe regular people shouldn't get to vote in primaries. You know, <laughs> so are you thinking? No, about I don't, I don't think back to know, and this is actually a classic example of the or it, not a classic example. I guess it's a it's a it's a, a political example of the tragedy of the commons. It's like the tragedy of the commons is this idea in economics that each individual person is motivated um their own personal economic motive is to, you know, basically poach, kill all the animals, take eat all the plants, etc. um but then if we could get people to collaborate, then collectively it's actually in everybody's interest for individuals to put the collective interest over the individual interest. And you have to kind of do that through the, through, through government. And so what you're happening, what's happening here in the Republican party is that it's actually in the, um, because of the way that our primary system works, it's in the individ- it's in the interest of each individual Republican senator to let Trump get away with these crimes um, be- because of the primary. But if they were all to actually come together and say, you know what, like, let's all vote to convict this guy so that he so that he's not allowed to run for president again, because that's something you can do is if he had been convicted, the Senate could have done another vote um, to make him ineligible uh, to, to run for president in the future. So if you think about it, if you're a, a senator in the Republican Party, you're thinking about maybe running for president yourself. You want to make sure that the party has a future um, outside of this like shrinking base of radical Trumpsters. You know, if you could just get them all to collaborate and collectively stand up to the president, that would be in their interest. But because of this primary system, each individual senator has an incentive uh, not to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, it's up to each state also whether or not um, they want to hold a primary, as far as I know. It's not a national mandate. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of different laws related to it at the state and the national level and so forth. But absolutely, like the states could stop doing primaries if they wanted to. (laughs) So what so what is our position on that? What do you think? Well, you you started outlining the pros and cons. Um, What do you what do you think? We should do. I mean, there's the the practical concern, as I said, that under our current system, anybody out there listening to this, if you live in a red state 
where a Republican is almost certainly going to win um, the electoral college votes for president and is almost certainly going to win um, um, in the Senate and the House, right? Then, uh, or maybe not the House if you live in a blue district within a red state. But the, the long and short of it is really it should you should go register as a Republican, even if you are the most progressive Democrat out there. But register as a Republican, vote to stop Donald Trump from getting the nomination, vote to oust pro-Trump senators who who aided and abetted Trump's act of treason and incitement of terrorism against our country. Um, and then, you know, you can vote for the Democrat in the general election still. But um, what do you think about these reforms? Should we stick with primaries? Should we do open primaries? Should we get rid of them? What's your opinion about that, Josh? Yeah, um, I think that uh, overall, uh, the argument is stronger to rid primaries, you know, on top of some of the things that we just talked about. I think that the current way primaries are set up is also a problem because you're giving a number of states like Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, whatnot, a lot of say early on um, to sort of direct the course of the ship early on, uh, which can right, make a yeah. big so difference. If you live in or, Ohio, you get way outsized influence. So not only do primaries give outsized influence to the most radical um, and um, base of each party, uh, but they also give outsized influence to certain tiny states. And I also think um, the way we currently have it set up, and I'm saying that because when we think about that question you're posing, is it an all or nothing? Is it a question of, like you said, should maybe we just think about reforming primaries instead? The way maybe it's currently set up is feeding into the extreme portions of the American populace. Um, so there's really yeah, a yeah, no, and, and, and the the problem, of course, is that not enough Americans um pay enough attention to politics to think through what I just did, right? Like Trump never would have gotten the nomination if reasonable moderates, you know, independents, uh, conservative Democrats, um, and even progressive Democrats in red states had just registered as Republicans and voted to stop Donald Trump's. T- takeover of that party, um, you know, they could have saved our country from a traitor. Uh, But most people don't do that. That's the problem. The problem is the people who are the most motivated and the most reliably are going to turn out and vote in a partisan closed primary are the most partisan, the most radical people in that party. Um, And it's a problem in the Democratic Party, too. You know, like the Democrats very nearly elected a socialist or nominated a socialist, in which case, in all likelihood, the fascist would have been reelected. Do you you think that's true, Josh, or do you have different instincts about that? I know you're less uh, less uh, down on Bernie than I am. Yeah, I know he was a self-proclaimed socialist, but I'm not certain that his actual policies reflect that in honesty. Okay, Um, so at a minimum, he's lying then. (laughs) At a minimum, yeah. Um, I do think that he's obviously a little more uh, left than maybe some, you know, between you and I, probably you're a little more uncomfortable with that. Uh, myself, I, I'm fine with most of his policies and approaches. Uh, I don't think they're necessarily the best for the 21st century, but I think it definitely, if he had been elected, it would have been a step in the right direction in, in a number of ways. Not, not in all ways, obviously. 
Um, well, the that's other true, but that, that, that assumes that assumes. I mean, from your perspective, that's true. Like, I, I think that the federal jobs guarantee, for example, is rubbing real close up against actual authoritarian communism. There. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that. Um, I de- definitely think it's de- it's dependent on how it's implemented exactly. So, or. Yeah. Uh, the guaranteed part, I think, is probably what bothers you the most. I can get Yeah, no, that. like job pro- jobs programs for infrastructure are a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Um, but yeah, the idea that everybody is entitled to a job through the government and they can't be fired for it. That's a and, and, and by the way, a job through the government means paid for by taxpayers. So what's the what's the outcome of that? If, if everybody's ult- you know working for the government, then the government is taking our money from us and then giving it back to us and then taking it from us. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. It looks a lot like uh, slavery to the state in the end. Of yeah. It. Going back to the primary question though, um, you know, knowing that a good portion of your audience are progressives listening in, um, they might see that as a reason to keep primaries. You see, um, I know that maybe you might deem them to be radical or whatever. Um, I do think that, um, you know, if you look at the population as a whole, a number of his policies are very popular. Um, it actually might serve that even if primaries were removed, uh, people might feel more free to vote for a candidate that wants, uh, you know, Medicare for all or UBI or whatnot, you know, because they don't feel they're as tied down to a affiliation and they're more looking at policies. So that's maybe. A, oh, that's an interesting know, a, point. I'm not sure I fully followed it. Could you um, elaborate on that point? Yeah, I mean, if you think about, uh, you know, there's a lot of tribalism when you think about primaries. That's sort of what you're getting at. What really represents the the, geo, uh, the Republican Party? What really represents the Democratic Party? Is that are is it the progressives or is it the centrist Democrats? And there's that ongoing fight and struggle. And so often progressives feel left out and not heard, and uh, it creates a lot of. Um, animosity and then as a result um even that many of them set out the election will even vote for trump as a um you know protest vote because they don't feel their policies are really oh, for being... god's sake yeah no they're <laughs> but if you so got they're, they, 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 they're they're progressives like bernie sanders is a socialist right they're like they're calling themselves that whether or not the word applies to them is debatable yeah i was saying that if you get rid of primaries however then um, you know, that person might feel their vote is actually being represented individually because they're not feeling an affiliation to a particular party, but they're more voting based on a set of policies that are important to them, you see. Yeah, no, that's a that's an interesting point. I, yeah, that certainly is the tension. The more progressive um, listeners to this podcast uh, probably will dislike my idea about ditching primaries <laughs> so maybe maybe the solution really is to reform them to kind of to make like open primaries um rather than closed primaries that that would be a step in the right direction at a bare minimum mm-hmm. yeah there was another point i was i was going to make um regarding primaries and um gosh i forgot it now uh, oh, I know what it was. It it has to do with uh, bre- you know political breathing space because it seems like we are constantly having elections, right? Um, so already we're we're thinking about looking ahead to 2022, and when is that going to start? Probably late November, October, and we just got off the tail of a general election. So this it's just continual 
onslaught of general election followed by a midterm election, by so forth and so on. And the primary makes that even more, um, you know, glaring that it just seems like it's just constantly about, you know, uh, elections and candidates and who, who's trying to win. So I do think if you read the primaries, it gives people a breathing space to really spend some time getting to know these various candidates. So that's one potential other advantage to reading primaries. Yeah. And, you know, even if you do have open primaries, you still have that problem of lower participation and the people who are the most motivated to actually vote in a primary are still going to be the most partisan and the most radical um, people. I mean, the, the, the problem is that we have a country with a huge, a broad, um, it's, I, I guess, like middle isn't exactly the right word to call it, um, but it's more like there are the vast majority of Americans um, don't really spend a lot of time thinking about politics. They don't think about it as much as you and I do or even close. Um, and they just kind of turn out in the general election and maybe check the box with a D next to it or a box with an R next to it. Um, but they don't really – they don't care as much about the – the, the details of policy and stuff. And so they're not as likely to vote in primaries. Um, and I, I mean, on the one hand, it's, I guess, good that the people who care the most um, are the ones who are turning out because in theory, they're paying the most attention and they're the most informed. Um, but like I said, at a bare minimum, even if you're the most progressive listener to this, like, you've got to be asking yourself, like, is the fact that if Donald Trump runs again, he is almost certain to get the nomination, even though he's arguably the worst president in the history of this country. Yeah. And that's because those motivated, partisan, radical, reliable Republican primary voters love the son of a bitch. Like, you, at a bare minimum, you got to admit that there is something wrong about that system, isn't there? Yeah, I think so. But at the same time, these are manifestations of um, – Something that the, a number of people maybe feel are is not being addressed in the current political setup, and I don't know how much you know primaries feeds into that or um, other possible causes or factors, but um, radicalization is born out of the fact that those people don't feel that their needs are being met or being addressed. Some of it, at least. I mean, I'm sure you have other possible reasons you think we get radical politics that happens. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, uh, if you have a set of, of the population that feels that they don't uh, having their, uh, what's important to them being addressed, rather it be Medicare for all or UBI or uh, the environment. Um, and maybe the, on the right uh, side, they may feel like the culture changing too rapidly, um, you know, abortion, gay marriage, so forth and so on. Um, they might feel that the dominating moderate centrist approach is the problem. <laughs> we need to get rid of that, you see. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Well, I don't know. I mean, we just had a fascist president for four years, so I don't feel like the center is even in power anymore, let alone the problem. <laughs> yeah, and but I, at the same time, you know, like why I understand why you would compare Bernie Sanders on the opposite end of that spectrum. I also think that, you know, he is not anywhere near the mindset of a Donald Trump, right? Uh, 
he's not crazy. <laughs> you know, he he's just has a different philosophy than perhaps you do in many ways, you know, as to what he believes the answer answers are. Uh, yeah, no, that's fine. I mean, this is a democracy. He has every right to hold his beliefs and to run for office. A- as I said, one of the concerns, though, is imagine if instead of Joe Biden, who um, polls very well with older voters, um, who, by the way, actually vote, unlike young people, <laughs> right? Um and uh, and and who is has a genuine reputation for bipartisanship? Um, if he if he won because there are, there are these um, you know the 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 Democratic base is motivated to turn out in large numbers to vote against Trump, um, but the the difference that made the difference were never Trump conservatives, um, soccer moms in the suburbs who were turned off by Donald Trump, who ordinarily would vote Republican because they like low taxes and small government, but they just couldn't bring themselves to support the Trumpist Republican Party, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if Trump had been running against a self-described socialist who um, wants a, a radical communist adjacent policy like a federal jobs guarantee, um, would Donald Trump's campaign have run ads saying you might not like me, but you can't vote for the commie. Um, and would that have motivated enough never Trump um, conservatives and enough of those soccer moms to say like, God, I guess I have to hold my nose and vote for Donald Trump. Absolutely. Absolutely. It would have like, I don't think there's any question about it. I think Trump would be president today if, if, if uh, the base of the democratic party had gotten its way. Yeah. It's a, uh interesting discussion because i know that there are other arguments um that run counter to what you're suggesting and um because a number of progressive policies are popular among the population there's some argument to be had that people number of people didn't show up to vote because they didn't feel they really had something that was important to them to them to vote for and uh, so we've never really had a situation uh, other yeah, than that, maybe although FDR. it was the highest voter turnout in history on both sides right so there's no Partially doubt because that of the a lot accessibility of, of vote by mail but i think yeah. also because donald trump really gets people moving like he gets your heart pumping either because yeah. you think that he's the savior of of <laughs> america jesus even say that out well, i do loud. i do he remember that fdr was very or very because popular. you think that he's a horrible human being because he mm-hmm. is but FDR was very popular because he did push forth uh, a number of policies. But you're right to say, you know, if you're picking the federal jobs program that, that has the guaranteed uh, term attached to it, then yes, I understand your argument. But outside of that, you know, most of Bernie's policies are not that radical, in my opinion. But that's just coming from me. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I again, like, I don't necessarily expect us to, I, I mean, agree on everything. That's the whole point of this show is we can agree to disagree and then find common ground, right? But isn't that what happened? I mean, Joe Biden is running on um, on a public option, a, a form of universal health care, right? And and frankly, also the one that's more in touch with the majority of Americans. The majority of Americans support universal health care, but they don't support um, outlawing private insurance, right? right. And so, right. Bernie, like Bernie Sanders is his position is the anti democratic one in this case. Like whatever, like you might think that he's right to support that position. But there's still work to be done to persuade your fellow Americans in that case. So like Joe Biden is, is I mean, he he has the most progressive 
um, healthcare platform that any president has ever had. And he's still going to have a hard time getting it through. But I, I would, I would also argue just practically speaking, as hard as it's going to be, Biden, who has a positive relationship with senators and Congress people on the other side of the aisle and whose policy is actually popular and relatively moderate, he has a real shot at actually achieving that. Whereas Bernie Sanders, um, like you, you want to, you think that the, the Republican party obstructed Obama, just wait until a socialist is president. Like, yeah, you're not going to get anything done. Yeah. There's also a, uh, uh, a coattail effect that comes with, um, you know, a large turnout, which I think Bernie would potentially be able to have achieved. Um, and then that could change the texture of Senate. Mm, or even the House. larger than we already had. I don't know about that. That's again, the historically largest turnout in history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not necessarily 100% disagreeing with you because I know that South Florida turned slightly more red this time around because of the word socialist, you know, South Florida in particular, you know, a number of the Cubans that don't like that term. <laughs> yeah. And for good so, reason, a lot yeah. of, a lot of immigrants there have personal experience with the nightmare of socialism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that Bernie did a disservice to himself and branded himself poorly uh, when he decided to proclaim he's a democratic socialist. Cause I, I truly think that if you now, you know, when it's all said and done and the clothes is washed and, you know, it might turn out that if he were elected, you know, his true self would come out. But if you look at his policies, really, you know, it's hard pressed to, to say he really is a socialist. You know, he's more a, you know, um, social Democrat, in my opinion, than he is a Democratic socialist. But, hey, that's another discussion. But well, um, Yeah, but not, on, not only that, but basically everybody in both parties is a social Democrat. That's the thing that. I just really want to drill into people's heads. This idea that the United States is this far right country or that the Republican Party is far right is just laughable. It's so laughable on on its face because literally every single you might I don't even think that somebody like Rand Paul <laughs> right is as far right as that. I mean, just about every elected representative in this country supports some form of social democratic policy. And that's because the 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 voters in this country want it. They love social security. They love Medicare, you know? <laughs> um there there is no real far right um movement uh, in any liberal democracy that has any real power, you know, I mean, um, we, I honestly think that we're closer to a to to a far left takeover than a far right one. Hmm. But, um, what, what are your thoughts on that, Josh? I think that if you're you're talking about the way politics politics is established, you know, uh, currently we have Social Security, currently we have, uh, you know, whatever Medicare. Um, I think you would be correct. Uh, on the other hand, if you're talking about the uh, the uh, optics uh, through media, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. Uh, I do think that, you know, if you think about Fox News, uh, there's a continual discussion about the, you know, uh, bringing up whether or not we need Social Security. Um, you know, it's implied if it isn't direct. And you have 
really large corporations. That's true, but they're never like. Do you really think that like let's say we got um, a super majority of Republicans in in the Senate, right? Let's say it was sixty. 60 of the senators were Republican. Do you really think they're going to completely get rid of Medicare and Social Security or are they just going to like maybe cut the amount that we spend on it a little bit or something like that? Right. Like they're not going to they're not going to get rid of it. Yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying because you're saying that the the policies are very popular. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is media in general, um, I think that it's a little more conservative um, than maybe the way our policies are established currently that's that's sort of my point um and then i'm i guess i'm thinking more broadly and globally you know if i'm comparing to norway say or japan or whatnot that it seems to me the united states is a little more conservative than most social democratic nations and so sure. in that sense yeah I think but that's Bernie a very different thing that's still it's still a far cry from actual far right that's all i'm saying yeah like if we lived in an actually far right country, there would be no public schools, let alone Medicare. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I just don't think people have even thought of, thought it through <laughs> when they say that. It's just it's so so removed from reality. It's so detached from reality. Um so but getting us back on the topic of the primaries, um it, I think I honestly think that we made a pretty strong case that in the case, that in both the Democratic and the Republican parties, um, partisan closed primaries at a bare minimum um, aren't good for the party, and they're and they're not good for the country, and they're not good for democracy. Yeah, I agree with that. At the very minimum, as you said, open primaries should be the way to go. And how open are you to the idea of ditching them entirely, Joshua? You 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 seem to have a good handle on the pros and cons. It's a I think it really depends on what the alternative is. Um, You know, if we have a better alternative to that, then absolutely I'm open to that. Um, That's a really good point. What would be an alternative? I mean, just if we were to go back to the way things were done before, basically what that was, was, um, you know, just like in in an old-fashioned corporation, People would start at the low level. You'd start by running for city council or something like that, right, in your in your party. And you'd get experience in government. You'd work your way up. And the, um, the equivalent of the board of directors of um, the party would decide from among the experienced, qualified people at lower levels who they were going to nominate to run at higher levels. That's how it used to work. I don't think that's so bad, is it? I mean, it 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 does remind me a little bit of a parliamentary system, you know, where that party selects its, uh, you know, representation of that par- that particular party. Um, so it's not far fetched, and we've done it in the United States prior. And not only that, but but what we're describing in some ways is the way things are actually done in some of the countries that you were just saying have better policies <laughs> yeah. than we do, right? I think that it. I would be more um, comfortable with that if we did have something alongside with that, such as ranked choice voting. Um, and then you had many different For the general, options. you mean? For the general election, yeah. You would have options, you know, as opposed to, okay, here are these two uh, dominating parties and they're just presenting to you these two candidates and that's it. You know, you just have to – then we're sort of back to, to square one but in a different way. Uh, at the, why I understand wanting to sort of shave off the most extreme portions of radicalism, uh, radicalism also 
if um, you know done properly and not to the extremes, does serve sort of moving the engine along. Um, so in that sense, uh, I wouldn't want to completely do away with some degree of um, you know people having a say about. So ranked choice voting might be that that answer to that. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've said this before on the podcast, but I'm agnostic about whether or not ranked choice voting would actually result in better people getting elected. But I do support it um, as a reform, um, as part of my push to compromise with the left um, and and try to – I think that democracy is compromise and people who aren't willing to compromise are undemocratic, frankly. <laughs> you know? And what are your thoughts about um, doing away with – uh, anything uh, that is other than the general election and just have a set of, um, you know, I'm not getting to the point of maybe doing away with um, parties altogether or affiliation. Maybe um, a particular party can, you know, there's parties out there like the Green Party. There's already the Libertarian Party. They can, you know, put forth a, uh, a representative. Yeah, yeah, no, t- totally. If we had ranked choice voting, I would vote for third parties rather often, actually. Um, so that is, that is appealing to me on a personal level. I just wonder whether or not the average voter, this is why I'm a bit agnostic about it, despite the fact that I do support it. Um, but like, it's a, it's kind of tepid support because I just wonder whether or not the average person, do they really pay enough attention to know the policy positions of the Republican and Democratic nominee, let alone, you know, five others. (laughs) I bet the average person couldn't even name all the third party candidates who are running. They might pay more attention if it, if they were a viable option. Though. Mm-hmm. So let's do a hypothetical and go back to 2016 and let's superimpose um, this, what you're saying. Um, who do you think would have ended up being um, elected other than Donald Trump? Um, in 2016, if, oh, I see what you're saying. So if if they if if they didn't have a primary at all, yes, correct. Uh, probably like Jeb Bush. You think so? Somebody like that, yeah, or maybe Marco Rubio. Yeah, because yeah, if you if you if you look at the the elites of the Republican Party, they were having very reasonable, moderate, liberal, um, in the in the the broad sense of liberal, uh, conversations about the party. They were saying, "We are, you know, we're shrinking. Um, like women are, are voting for us less and less." Um, people of color are voting for us less and less. We can't just be a party of straight white men in the flyover states. We've got to do something about this, right? And so they were looking for the compassionate conservatism of a moderate like Jeb Bush, or they were looking for um, you know, somebody who was a mo- moderate on immigration like Marco Rubio. And I have to say, Rubio revealed his true colors defending Donald Trump to the extent that he is now. Like I would have been happy to see him be the nominee, but I, but like there's something dark in that man's soul um, that when push came to shove, he was willing to defend a traitor like Donald Trump. So fuck him now. <laughs> but, but from, the, from a uh, but th- th- strategy that standpoint. That could be true. And at the same time, would he have, would he have uh, com- incited domestic terrorism? No, right? Because Donald Trump is a lunatic. How about Kasich? Do do you like him? Yeah, he would be terrific. I don't think that the party leadership would have chosen him, but they would. The odds of them choosing Kasich were a million times higher than them choosing Trump. 
They never would have in a million years chosen Trump. That was the unwashed masses. That was the mob. That was that was the mob that wanted Trump, not the not the elites of the party. Yeah, um, there's so much here because I know that uh, we may differ a little in terms of, um, you know, do the two established parties or have the two established party really address the greater population as a whole? And maybe that led to Donald Trump. Maybe that led to a Bernie Sanders, right? Um, you might argue differently. You might argue, you know, having the primary is one potential factor. What are your thoughts there? I mean, do you, how much of that, I'm sure you've heard that argument before. Uh, which argument exactly? Well, you know, we were earlier talking about primaries may be a factor as to why America is be- becoming more and more polarized, more radicalized. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying that isn't potentially one factor. You might be correct there. Um, another argument that might be uh, from great number of listeners of yours uh, and mine is that uh, we're be- being radicalized because a number of the uh, policies that are important to those people out there are not really being addressed. And we're seeing poverty go up and you know economic problems, social problems. I mean, is it, it's hard to tell. Like, uh, I mean, I definitely, the there's definitely a perception of that. There's a perception of that. Um, I've referenced this book many times on the podcast before. I don't know if I've talked to you about it yet, Josh. Um, but if you really want to understand why I am so concerned about the rise of illiberalism in the classic sense of the word liberal, the rise of radical anti-liberal ideologies in the basis of both major parties. Um, it's, it's because I think that Steven Pinker, the, the Harvard, um, psychologist, uh, <laughs> did a, an absolutely knockdown fact-based analysis of, um, of, of the United States and also the li- liberal democracies broadly in his book, Enlightenment Now. Um, and he proved two things. One, that while, of course, it's true that the um, the liberal order did not usher in an age of utopia, right? Um, and this is where you put in, in brackets, liberals don't believe utopia is possible, and it's not. They're right. Um, but nevertheless, it did lead to the greatest, most prosperous, most peaceful societies in the history of the human race. Period. Hands down. Knocked down. Absolutely true. Is it perfect? No. Is it better than anything else anybody else has ever tried? Astronomically so, right? So he proved that. And then secondarily, um, he also proved that despite that fact, um, the, the, the spread of misinformation um, and also just certain weird incentives in the media. So there's there's the problem of misinformation, which is mainly not a, a mainstream media problem. That's more of an internet blogging, Breitbart kind of TYT problem. But even among the mainstream media, which isn't spreading outright misinformation, there's still an incentive. You've heard the phrase, when it, when it bleeds, it leads. Mm-hmm. Yep. So there's still an incentive, even in the real credible news, um, to highlight the bad things, right? Because, you know, like... <laughs> we talked about this when we did our um our Christmas episode about about 
the war on Christmas, right? Like part of the reason people perceive that this war on Christmas is a, is bigger than it is is because the news covers it every time somebody sues a public school over the use of the word Christmas, right? But they don't cover it every time they're like, here it is, yet another normal American small town where people are allowed to say Christmas in public school, <laughs> you know, right? They only cover the bad stuff. And so as the world is getting better, um, people's diets of, of a combination of misinformation and the incentive to um, to only highlight the most the worst things that are happening in the world, people's nevertheless have a misperception that the world is getting scarier and darker and worse, which is exactly false, you know? And so, yeah, his point is people, people are taking the fruits of liberalism for granted and, and they're being deranged by misinformation and by the incentive to, to only highlight the negative aspects of society. Mm. Yeah. But at the very minimum, uh, I would think you, you see that, um, there has been, you know, um, weakening of, um, I guess, union rights, uh, workers' rights. There have been um, people having to take on more than one job. I mean, those aren't just made up. The, those are realities, you know, childhood poverty going well, up. Absolutely. But there's also a number of reasons that lead to that. You know, I mean, first of all, history is always, there's always kind of a back and forward. It's not like progress is, is inevitable or it's a straight line. Um, you know, that's actually a, a, an unfair criticism that people have made of Pinker's point. He's not saying that, you know, we're inevitably moving toward some kind of progress. He's saying that the progress that we've achieved so far was for a reason. It was hard. It was hard won through the messy um, and sometimes it even sends you backwards a little bit process of democracy. Right. Um, so yeah, he's not taking that for granted. The, the, the people who voted for Trump because they think that America is falling apart at the seams when it's not, or actually it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because by voting for him, they actually helped to usher in an actual destruction of our, of our, um, institutions. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely, um, you know, picking up on the discussion that we had uh, on my channel, and I'd like to continue to have, uh, because I think that um, you're very good about um, sounding uh, uh, the voice for uh, re-understanding how we got here, right? Um, but what I, I think many people may come away from needing from you is... Okay, so if it isn't uh, capitalism, if it isn't um, all these other things that progressives or those on the you know radical right are talking about, then what is it, and what are the solutions to those? How much of that is real, or how much of that is what you're talking about? You know, that was maybe one of the um, disagreements that you and Corey had uh, about to what extent do we have real problems in America, and how mm -hmm. much of that is a result of the current way we do politics in America, the establishment, you know, they're uh, being tied into Citizens United, things like that. Yeah, I think you're right. That was one of our disagreements. And to be to be clear myself, I'm not saying that we don't have problems, right? I'm saying that we will always have problems. I'm saying utopia isn't possible um, and that it's easier to break things than it is to fix them. As the saying goes, you know, any idiot can kick down a barn, right? But it takes a, a contractor to build one, right? Um, it's easier to break things than it is to fix them. And when people just naively are just blase about policies that are 
being pushed in the name of progress. And they're not seriously taking the possibility that it might have negative consequences that could actually make things worse in some ways. Um, you know, then they're not serious people, right? If we want to have a nuanced, serious conversation about the problems in our society and what the multiple causes of them are and the the possible downsides, the ne- you know, the pros and cons of any particular idea, then yes, that's the solution. That's democracy. That is that is the process of classic liberalism that I'm defending. That's all good, right? I'm just saying don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't, you know, like for fuck's sake, in the 21st century, people are re- they're they're starting to take fascism and communism seriously again? Really? Seriously? Come on, you guys. Get with the program. Yeah, so if I'm hearing you correctly, um it seems to me you're suggesting that um, liberalism allows for, you know, as we often analogize uh, on your channel and mine, uh, a brake and a um, gas pedal, and we want to stay on that road. And sometimes maybe the car is going a little more slowly than it should. Sometimes it's going too quickly, but the road is not the problem. The car is not the problem. Maybe those that are in the driver's seat. So whatever. <laughs> yes, exactly, precisely. And we're all in the driver's seat, right? Okay. Uh, that analogy is more like we, we're, we, each of us are a car on the road, right? And there are people who are saying, like, you know, hey, it's really hard to coordinate everybody's movement, right? Um, but we all, you know, we've 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 got to do the best we can and work within the system. And then there are the people who are saying, like, no, let's just, you know, like. Let's just blow the whole system up. Let people just drive into each other. Let people just drive off the road. You know, just like let it all go crazy because things are so bad, by which they mean it's not a perfect utopia. Things are so bad that we should just blow the whole system up. And I'm saying those people are crazy and they need we we do need to de-radicalize them. And I I think that that is um, basically in a nutshell why Yang got into politics, right? He recognizes that there are people deranged by misinformation and by bad incentives, and he just wants to calm them down and actually save our institutions right. from the people. Yeah, I'm hearing you better now. Um, so you're talking about uh, responsibly guiding the ship and not accelerating it uh, you know, ridiculously or having it just sort of set there and fester. Um so what I get from you, although you're a conservative, and correct me if I'm wrong in, in what I'm taking away, um, I would argue that you would argue um, you think that the ship has slowed up a little too much and that maybe we do need a little progress, um, even though you by heart are a conservative. Um, yeah, no, exactly. We'll recognize I mean, that um, we need to move ahead a little bit here. Yeah, yeah. So just to kind of go back to the the the, the whole foundation, the whole reason for this podcast, right? People have been brainwashed to think that conservative and progressive are opposites, and nothing could be further from the truth. Not only are they not opposites, but they complement complement each other. They need each other. You can't achieve real progress in society, right? If you ignore the possible downsides of of ideas and all the conservative mindset is, is it's saying like, hey, OK, you know, that sounds good, but let's talk about what's good about the current system. Let's make sure we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's preserve what's good. And of course, let's try to improve, 
you know, things that need improvement. Right. And then on the other side, um, you know, if you're, if you're just stubbornly opposed to all change, even if it would make things better, that's not good either. And so really, um, a democratic process requires all of us to be both conservative and progressive and finding that balance is the way to make best policy. Yeah. I like the emphasis on the tandem aspect of, of those two, you know, they're more of a continuum than an actual, you know, one opposed to the other. They're working in tandem. That's a nice way of putting that. Yeah. And, and needless to say, <laughs> to, to, to go full circle and wrap this up, um, you know, you're not going to find that balance by giving outsized influence to the most partisan and radical people who are unwilling to compromise and whose ideas are the most out of touch with reality. Yeah, you definitely need- Or not even just most out of touch with reality, but they're just the furthest removed from even attempting that balance. They they think that compromise is bad. They 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 punish if a Democrat works with a Republican or a Republican works with a Democrat, a partisan um you know, uh base voter in that party's primary is going to punish them for it instead of rewarding them for it. And yet, you know, think about how irrational that is, because you know, those same people are going to turn around and complain about the fact that nothing ever gets done in Washington. Well, you know why? Because every time somebody tries to get something done, which involves compromise and practicality in real life, you vote them out. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that that's definitely the nature of the progressives. <laughs> Let's... uh. Not vote for them unless they line up 100% with the way I think sh- things should be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and of course, it's also true about the, the extremes um, in the Republican Party. Yeah, that's uh, that's great stuff, uh, Rio, because I think that, um, you know, a lot of people, they get confused about what the answer is because they, you know, many people recognize there there are problems. In some way, we have slid back and we're sliding behind in many ways. Uh, and in other ways, we're moving ahead. And I think people are latching onto those those areas and they're getting impatient. And they uh, label it as, you know, incrementalism or whatnot. You know, they put on a negative connotation to it if it's not moving at the pace that they want it to move. Uh, and then, yeah, yeah. let's make us let's make an explicit case for incrementalism even. Right. Balance is I've already made a case for balance. The case for incrementalism is exactly this. Right. It's the, the process of evolution. OK. Um, mutations um, are rare and evolution happens slowly. But it really couldn't work at all if it if it weren't slow, um, you know, if in the in the um, the pro in the political process, incremental change means you can test it out. Is this working? Oh, OK, we like that. Let's do a little more of that. Oh, it turns out that there is this unforeseen consequence that we didn't consider. Maybe we should, uh, you know, put the brake on or, or reverse for a second. Right. You can't do that if you just radically reshape society overnight. Um, you're, you're, there's no, there's no mechanism for course correction It because, you know, things will go too far. They'll go off the rails before you get a chance to fix it. Yeah. Um, I put a little pushback on that in that, um, I would, um, define it a little better in my opinion. And it is that yes, you can have radical change, but it, it's very risky and might result in an equal opposite <laughs> outcome, all right, which can be quite dangerous. And it could disrupt and destroy democracy, and then you have to start all over again. Uh, so that's the first one. And the second one, um, as you were speaking, it I, I started to understand a little better about uh, maybe why people 
think that that's the answer, you know, the sort of the radical approach. Because if you look at history, we typically get only a snapshot of the civil rights movement or the suffrage movement or whatever movement. And we think that that happened in like, you know, a one month period or six month period, when in fact that took years and years of blood, sweat and tears to build up to that, that sort of like climax of, you know, that civil rights right case being signed into legislation by uh, uh, LBJ, right? So it's not happening within one year. It's happening over a course of 20 years or 400 years, if you think even, you know, much right. more parochially. So, yeah, no. And, and for the reason I just said it, 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 you know, like real life, real life is disappointing sometimes, right? <laughs> Part of growing yeah. up is just recognizing that fact about life, right? Well, I mean, I think that for me, at least, um, what I like about um, your podcast is that you do recognize that change is a good thing. You know, a lot of conservatives, they're very, um, you know, like you said earlier. I mean, it can be a good yeah. thing. It can also it be, can be a good thing. Depends. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So we need more of those type of conservatives and then – I'm sure yeah, and we argue. need more progressives like you. Actually, <laughs> let's that sounds like a good way to kind of round round this um wrap this up. Joshua, say a little bit about what you mean when you call yourself a neo-progressive and how is your approach to prog pro, to progressivism different from the radicals that we're we're criticizing right now? Yeah, I think uh recently, more recently, I've been using the term uh progressive uh I am sorry, pragmatic idealism. Um I think it's fine to be idealistic, but I think if you're not pragmatic about what works, um, then you really are fighting against yourself. Um, so it's being thoughtful, mindful, as which is another way of being, you know, being conservative, because when you're thinking in that thinking space, you're sort of slowing down and you're saying, hey, you know, how does this fit into what is? Um, we don't want to disrupt it to the point that it is counterproductive. So that to me is what it means to be a neo-progressive. Going back to the roots of, of Theodore Roosevelt is is what I always like to sort yeah. of say. Preach, Amen, Hallelujah in your in your vernacular. <laughs> God, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> All right, and um, as I, I've started doing now, I'm going to to end the podcast by thanking a patron. Um, today I'm thanking Gabriel Eggers, who has been a patron for several months, and uh, so far he's given us a Harriet Tubman and four Washingtons. <laughs> so thanks a lot, Gabriel. Awesome. Uh, and uh, Joshua, do you want to say it? Yes. Moving forward is our gumbo. This is Josh from New Progressive Voice. So thank you very much for listening in to Rio and our discussion about progressivism. So definitely go over to movingforwardpod.com to support the cause to consensus building. Building bridges is more vital than ever. So definitely check them out. 